As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and on today's episode, it's time for another roundup of Americans in action this past weekend to help me spend about an hour, I'm guessing, talking about some exciting and some not-so-exciting performances. I'm joined by a gentleman who always gets an applause break when he returns to the podcast from injury. It's Joe Lowry. Hi, Joe. Joe, here's your applause. Even though you haven't been injured, I'm still applauding. Oh, Taylor, thank you so much. I feel exactly like Gio Reyna, or what I imagined Gio Reyna <laughs> would have felt returning to training from Bruce Dortmund. Also, just what a what a great way to spend an hour talking about some different American players. I, I can't think of a whole lot of other ways I'd rather spend an hour. Yeah, I think it's a pretty good way to spend it. It certainly beats uh, like like manual labor in a mine or something like that. Yeah, I feel like this is pretty easy in my comfortable chair. We are going to talk about Americans uh, returning to training, playing in games, doing things in just a bit because we have some U.S. men's national team news to get to, starting with the next USMNT camp. Let's run it through. Joe, we've got some tweets from Stephen Goff who reported USMNT camp opens next Monday. That's very soon in Carson, California, with mostly domestic-based players. It's a non-FIFA window. We're awaiting the roster this week. At last check, Greg Berhalter was aiming to bring in D.C. United's Kevin Paredes, who's 18 years old, uh, Louisville's Jonathan Gomez, who's also 18, US, uh, USA-Mexico Youth International moving to Real Sociedad. The USA will play Bosnia on December 18th in Carson. So we basically got two weeks of camp. Then a friendly non-FIFA window, so domestic-based players. Joe, are you excited about this one, or are you mostly just sort of ready for more soccer? I'm ready for more soccer, mm-hmm. and I am, I am excited about this one in a way. I don't know how much impact this camp will have on World Cup qualifying. And yeah. Even for some folks we're going to talk about later, we're getting excited about some of these guys, and they're growing and they're improving but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're in line for an appearance before the 2022 World Cup, right? So we kind of have to separate those two things. But for the purpose of getting players involved and making them feel like they're a part of this culture and they're a part of what Greg Berhalter and U.S. Soccer have been trying to build on the men's side, I think that's really important. I think about what Mexico does. And Tata Martino organizes a bunch of those mini camps in Mexico during the season. 
and players go and play and meet up and, and get to know each other and get reps in. This can be that. More camps, I think, is generally better, especially given the timing right after the MLS season is is essentially over. There'll only be, I believe, one more game. It'll be MLS Cup. Only two teams alive at that point in Major League Soccer. So players are going to have time. They're going to have time to go and, and learn and get some experience here. And for young guys like Paredes, like Jonathan Gomez especially, those guys are dual nationals. They've got opportunities elsewhere. Jonathan Gomez really has opportunities with Mexico. Having a chance to get a closer look at him if he's actually able to make it to this camp, I think is really worthwhile. So those two names aside, Joe, and the, your your answer can honestly be like, nah, not really. Is there anybody you would like to see in this camp? Anyone that you think has deserved it or you think could potentially play their way into contention for the next camp in January or potentially even those World Cup qualifiers? I feel like normally when we have a January, uh, the Camp Cupcake, as it sometimes gets called – It's more about like, oh, let's just see what happens. Let's see who gets called in. Let's see what they do. And maybe we learn some things. I am sort of inclined to feel that same way about this camp. But I'm wondering if there's anybody in particular you want to see or if you do have any expectations for this camp. So I want to see Jordan Morris. And I hope we'll see Jordan Morris. The Sounders are out of, of the playoffs. And getting him a chance to be integrated with this team again after he was a pretty important part under Greg Berhalter, then injured with Swansea, you know, tore his ACL, didn't play for Seattle until the very, until very, very recently. Having him a chance to get back in and, and get involved with some semblance of the group, again, I think would be valuable. But the name that first st- stood out to me, Taylor, when you asked that question, it's someone I've been thinking about a little bit, CJ Sapong. Yeah. I, I, don't know that, I don't know that he will break into this group again. He's He was involved under Dave Sarikin. But uh, I don't know that he'll break into this group before 2022, and he may never actually break back into the national team fold. But he's been kind of he's been kind of good for Nashville. Yeah. He scored a decent number of goals for them this season. You and I have both watched him up close to the TV screen in, in the playoffs for Nashville SC. <laughs> I sat he's very like, close to the screen. So yeah, yeah sort of. My like, nose is basically on the screen, <laughs> so that's that's why I said that. Yeah, he's he's been good. Taylor, he and, yeah. and Hani Mukhtar have been combining. Sapong's looked aggressive. I, I think he could help the U.S. Men's National yeah. Team. And uh, I think this December camp or even a January camp, which is going to lead the U.S. into those qualifiers, I think those could be opportunities to get a closer look at him. Uh, Two things there, one negative, one positive. First, regarding Jordan Morris, Seattle fans, you can go ahead and earmuff it if you want to, if you don't want to hear me (laughs) have to bring up an age-old topic. But, Joe, we didn't talk about this. When they lost RSL, Morris has that moment where he is open, he has a shooting chance, and he goes for the Travella, which is a thing that we've talked about many times on this show, many times in the past, and seemed like it had sort of gone away or been less of a key part of the way he shoots, the way he likes to strike that ball was more willing to use the left foot in seasons past. And I will just say, I did not love that moment from a returning from injury, natural instincts sort of coming back to play. And he goes for that Travella. If he hits it with his left, I think he hits it more clean. I think he puts it on frame at the very least. So that was a moment I think we didn't talk about that much. And maybe we could have, but I did want to spotlight just to say that with that said, I really want to see Jordan Morris in camp. He would be more of a veteran, but he would be returning from injury veterans. So I think he would have kind of a higher standing in that camp and would be given a little bit more license to grow and develop and sort of do what needs to be done under Greg Berhalter. So I feel like that would be a really smart one. CJ Sapong also is a great shout, Joe, because I am not watched a ton of Nashville this season. I've obviously watched them in the playoffs and in the lead up to the playoffs. 
And he does sort of fulfill a lot of what we want that number nine role to be. He can lead the line. He can be the sort of poacher in the box when there's low crosses coming in. But he can also uh, stretch the line, like make, make those direct runs that makes center backs collapse or make center backs track him into space. And that opens up opportunities for other players. But then he can drop in. He can link up. He can hold up. Uh, one of Nashville's goals in the playoffs come from him sort of dropping in, holding it up, and then making that good aggressive run for Hani Mukhtar to eventually score. I have enjoyed what I've seen from C. DJ Sapong, and I think calling him in makes a lot of sense and in some ways is a reward for a solid season. So both of those very good shouts, Joe Lowry. Thank you. And, and there's there's other youngsters as well that maybe could get a look coming up from the U-20 camp that just happened under uh, Mikey Varas. There's some opportunities maybe for some of the union's youngsters if they're not involved uh, in, in MLS Cup. They're, they could get a look here. There's some other folks as well. Maybe Kate Cowell getting a look from San Jose. So this could be a chance for Baralter to just get a look at a bunch of these young players who aren't so established at the international level, as well as getting a look at some players that, that have been there before and have done it, if not for a while. So I, I think the December camp is going to be valuable. I think that January camp that's going to be domestic heavy again before the European guys fly over, right before the, the World Cup qualifying cycle resumes in, in, in late January. I think that camp's going to be valuable as well. Just generally, the more chances that Baralter has to work with any group of American players, I think, is valuable for the long-term future of this team. So let's keep, keep talking about some of those camps then. Uh, continuing with Stephen Goff's reporting, uh, the expectation is that there will be another domestic heavy camp uh, taking place in January, probably in the Phoenix area. Joe, uh, for you. There you go. Uh, before <laughs> Euro-based uh, players arrive when the FIFA window opens uh, for camp in Ohio, immediately ahead of the three World Cup qualifiers from January 26th to February 2nd. Uh, included in that reporting was that Independiente central midfielder Alan Sonora, 23 years old, is high on the list of players to be called in. But it remains to be seen if his club will allow him to attend a USMNT camp outside of a FIFA window. So we will obviously be tracking both of those camps, paying attention to what happens there. We'll watch that friendly. But Joe, we have more U.S. news because uh, speaking of those qualifiers in that international window... U.S. Soccer announced that the January-February home qualifiers will be in Columbus and St. Paul. Columbus will host El Salvador on January 27th. Uh, then the U.S. goes away to site TBD for an away game against Canada on January 30th. Then they're home at Allianz Field in St. Paul against Panama on February 2nd. The reporting that I have read, Joe, that I tend to agree with, especially from Brian Sharetta, is that this is a potentially risky decision that could potentially backfire or could end up being very, very smart. We won't know what happens until the games are played, but there is opportunity for this to work out really well. There's opportunity for it to blow up in our face. One quick thing, that that game against Canada on January 30th, I believe, has been officially placed in Hamilton, Ontario. So that's... That, from my understanding, is part of the reason behind where these mm-hmm. games are being played. Shorter flights makes the travel a little bit easier. You don't have to deal with going down and, and going across thousands of miles or whatever the situation mm-hmm. would have to be. Taylor, from from your perspective, what are some of the risks here other than cold? Because it's, it's it. going to be cold. I mean, okay. that's the big yeah. thing, is, right? <laughs> We're playing, uh, as I said, El Salvador and Panama, then uh, Canada sandwiched in between those. But El Salvador and Panama, uh, Joe, I don't know if you know this, but Central America tends to be fairly warm. Uh, oh, and so interesting. B- both of those countries, you could argue, would be maybe less uh, likely to handle the cold particularly well. It, it maybe gives the U.S. an advantage there. But, uh, and this was Brian Charetta's point, 
if it is heavy snowfall, if it is bad conditions, oftentimes snowfall, poor conditions is a neutralizer when it comes to talent. So if you do have a talent advantage, as the United States uh, does and should against El Salvador and Panama, if you are then playing in conditions that sort of nullify that advantage, it goes down to basically who is scrapping for things, who is fighting harder, or who can sort of be more defensive, defensively solid, that is, and maybe get that one on the counter and then things open up from there. So I think there's opportunities for the United States to have an advantage and get these results that we would expect them to get. But if it is really bad conditions and they end up sort of suffering in a nil-nil draw or even like a one-to-one draw, then it makes less sense in my mind. So it really will come down to how these things uh, play out. I'm not overly concerned, but there is a little bit of concern, I think, from some folks Uh, in the media and some folks uh, on the Twitters. I think that's fair. And it'll be interesting to see how that plays out and if the field conditions turn into an equalizer or just turn out to to be fine in the U.S.'s favor in those games. I went through, Taylor, and looked at the average high temperatures Mm -hmm. in in, uh, Columbus on January 27th each year and in St. Paul on February 2nd. Do you want to guess the temperatures? Should I just say them? Uh, How do you want to do this? Oh, man. Uh, I'm going to assume they're like right around 30 or below. Yeah, so Columbus, the high on January 27th is 36 degrees, yep. uh, the high average temperature. And St. Paul on February 2nd, the average high temperature is 25 degrees. So yeah. uh, for my little Phoenician heart, that sounds extremely <laughs> challenging. Maybe these players, I'm sure they are, a lot of them playing in, in cold weather climates, are a lot yep. more used to that stuff. But it'll be, it really will be fascinating to see how that works. The behind-the-scenes logistical part of scheduling these games and figuring out travel is not something that... I'm familiar with. I've never had to do any of that stuff, but it's it's complicated, yeah. and I think there could be value in making this process as easy, as simple, and as logistically as logistic challenge free as you can. And I think yeah. that's what U.S. Soccer has tried to do here. Yeah, and and I think when you look at, I just looked up what the average uh, temperature would be around the time of the game in Hamilton. Uh, mm. I think the high would be around 30 or 31. The low would be around 18 or 19 degrees. So it does make sense then that you wouldn't be playing in, say, Texas or Florida, play one of those friendlies in warm conditions, and then suddenly you are thrown into the harsh environs of Ontario. makes more sense to try to find something that kind of makes that more of a uniform camp so you're not having those big swings, those big changes. So I think... I, I shift back towards being okay with it. And obviously, folks in Minnesota will be happy. Obviously, folks in Columbus will be very, very happy. Ohio has been good to the U.S. so far in World Cup qualifying. Let's see if that continues. So, yeah, maybe not too much of a story there, Joe. Just uh, a lot of cold weather and maybe some snow uh, come the next round of World Cup qualifying. I like it when players wear gloves, Taylor. I think it looks cool. So maybe this <laughs> gets us gloves. I, I like gloves. I'm a sucker for gloves and collared jerseys. Um, yeah. So I don't, do with that information what you will, but I think there's a chance we see gloves here, and I think that's a win. I'm glad that Joe is going to get uh, some of his <laughs> gloves. We are now going to get to some of the Americans who were in action this past weekend. Uh, as usual, we're going to start with some quick hits, some maybe quicker chats about a few different players. Then we'll look maybe more in depth at a couple as well. But Joe, as I mentioned in the beginning, we have Gio Reyna back in training. He got the applause break. Uh, then he, uh, we're going to assume, ran out and managed to not get injured. And hopefully we'll see him back playing for Dortmund in the very near future. Taylor, this is huge, right? Yes, getting is. him back on the field. It's been a while since Giorena has played in a game after getting injured with the U.S. men's national team on an international break earlier this year. Getting him back involved with Dortmund, getting him 90 minutes fit and right in time for the winter break and then getting him back up to speed before those qualifiers for the U.S. at the end of January, early February. 
the timing's perfect, and, and he needed to start getting work back in, work, worked back into the fold, and that's exactly what's happening. I can't wait to see him play more under Marco Rosa over the next couple of months and uh, get him back into the national team picture. All right, Joe, uh, we're going to go, like, Check plus, check, or check minus for these players. So in terms of the quick update, Giorena gets a check plus, I'm assuming? Oh, check plus plus, baby. Check plus plus. I like it. What about Joe Scally, who gets the start for Gladbach this past weekend? That's good. It's at left wing back in a 3-4-2-1. Not sure I'm as in love with that. Them getting trounced 4-1 to by Cologne, I'm definitely not a big fan of. He had a poor match rating overall. Uh, where are you on Mr. Scally? We can give him a check here. I, mm-hmm. I'm mostly just impressed by the fact that Scally Taylor, I didn't I didn't know this, but it feels right now thinking about it. Scally started every single Bundesliga game for Borussia Mönchengladbach this season. And I don't know why when I was looking through FB Ref to see that, seeing all the whys underneath, you know, the starter category. Yes, 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 yes. That that really impresses me. He's been good in a lot of these games. He's developed as a player. His numbers are are really strong. And so even in a game like this, I didn't get a chance to watch him. But just the fact that he has continued to be such an important part of that team, and that's a check for me. I agree. I also agree that FB Ref is a very underrated uh, website. Yes, they have sponsored so the show in the past. They are not sponsoring us now. But I will say that when I'm looking for more like involved statistics, I end up uh, going back to them, and I use them multiple times for purposes of this very episode. So, Joe, I echo that FB Ref gets a check plus plus as well. What about Chris Richards coming off the bench now for Hoffenheim? Uh, his last start in the league was their 4-0 loss to Bayern Munich. Does not seem like he is in the starting plans anytime soon. Joe, Chris Richards, I have concerns. Yeah, I do. I do too. Not about mm-hmm. like his long term future, really, even about his ability to impact with the national team to make an impact with the national team. But this is not an ideal situation for him. I will say, though, young players have bumps in the road. Veteran players have bumps in the road, right? Hasn't started, you mentioned, since that, that Bayern Munich game. That was way back on October 23rd. Um, he's, he's fully a bench player now for Hoffenheim. Will that be the case forever? No, I think he'll work his way back into the lineup probably before the end of this season. But for right now, we're giving the situation a check minus. Yeah, I think check minus for me because we've got, uh, they are still playing a back three most of the time. They occasionally go to a back four. And for a moment, I thought like, oh, back four just means there's one fewer center back. So that's why he's not in there. But even uh, regularly when they've been playing in a back three, it's Kevin Vogt, it's Florian Grilich, and it's Stefan Poch. Uh, Vogt and Grilich are both captains in various levels. Grilich might be the actual captain. Vogt is like the third captain, I think. Posh is a 24-year-old center back who's come in. Uh, and I think Richards basically seems to be one that they kind of bring in in the 60th to 70th minute, especially if they're in a back four and need to shift to a back three, then he'll come in. And and that can be fine. I just want to see him continue to develop, and I don't want to see those substitute appearances become uh, did not play. Uh, lack of appearances, and I don't want to see the few starts he does get just become those substitute appearances. So it could trend in a negative direction. It could also trend in a positive direction. But I do have him as a check minus just for now, just as a warning sign to Chris Richards. I'm sure he's concerned. Yeah, you hear that, Richards and Sebastian yeah. Honus? We, we gave you a check minus. <laughs> get it together, folks. We have uh, more quick hits and then some more in-depth Americans in action to get to. But first, Joe, we're going to take a break to hear from today's sponsors. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. We are back, still going through our quick hits portion of Americans in Action this past weekend. Joe, I've been talking for a while. Why don't you give some marks for Tim Weah, Gianluca Busio, and Luca De La Torre? Oh, we're really quick hitting it. Okay, yeah. Tim Weah, I'm giving a check plus. He was excellent coming off the bench uh, for Lille this past weekend. Really strong 15 minutes from him. Clever on the ball on the right wing. Good defensive work. He hits this ball into the box that leads to a penalty for Lille. That's a chance for them to win this game. And I believe Jonathan David uh, takes the penalty and does not convert it. One thing I noticed with Weah, I know this is supposed to be quick hits and it will be. One no, thing no, I noticed no, with no. Weah over the last, I don't know, couple of months, or maybe it's just clicked in for me recently, it's, it's when he has the ball on the right wing. He's right-footed, so he's playing as more of a traditional winger on that side for Lille. He's so good at hitting a ball into the box, this well-weighted cross with good pace, before the defender can close him down. And, and what really clicked for me is I saw it in this game, and that's the ball that leads to the penalty for Jonathan David. It happens here, but it also happened on that Christian Pulisic goal against Mexico earlier in this World Cup qualifying cycle. He clips that ball into the box, not because he creates an overwhelming amount of separation, but just because he literally gets his foot to the ball quicker than the defender can react. And I don't know exactly how that will impact games going forward, but it does make him a threat on that side. He is quick, he is fast, he has that foot speed, but in some of those moments, it's literally just his timing that allows him to put some some key balls into the box. So between that and just his overall impact in his bench cameo, uh, Tim, Tim Weah gets a check plus. Gianluca Busio taylor started for Venezia against Inter Milan. Pretty good from the clips I saw. Didn't you know, wow me particularly, but continuing to get touches on the ball, pretty active defensively, moving, being mobile. Check plus against uh, a really strong team in Serie A. And then Luca De La Torre. This is, a, this is an interesting one, Taylor. He started for Heracles in a 1-0 yeah. loss. I'm not so interested in that particular game, although from what I've read, he was good and, and has been pretty highly regarded recently by the media in the Netherlands. But Luca De La Torre went on the Sam's Army podcast. I, I assume he was asked to be on it, didn't you know seek that out, but I guess I don't really know. He was on the Sam's Army podcast and uh, was asked about the communication that he had gotten from Greg Baralta regarding him being left off of the November roster. And I've got a quote, Taylor. I'm going to read it to you. It's a little bit long, but I'm, I'm going to get through it. Luca De La Torre said in response to that, that question, Greg called me and we spoke on the phone for a little bit. His reasoning was that he feels like other players are better in transition and that they would be better suited to these games, which, in my opinion, transition has been one of the stronger parts of my game over the last six months. So that was a little disappointing, but it is what it is. So pretty, you know, pretty professional veteran-like response from Luca De La Torre. But I thought it was interesting that that was the reasoning, transition, that Baralter gave him for why he was left off of that roster. And interesting that he would discuss that. And I, I appreciate that he did discuss that in a public forum. So that's mm. a little update on Luca De La Torre. <laughs> not, not really a check, a check minus or a check plus, but more of just a here's what happened situation. So I want to push back a little bit on the professionalism aspect of that response from Luca De La Torre because 
I think for us doing the show that we do, we want more information. I think fans want as much information as they can get about why players are called in or Burhalter's selection process. But I think Burhalter probably does not want that information out there. And purely from a Greg Burhalter perspective, I'm going to assume he does not love a on the cusp of, of the pool player going out and saying, this is why I wasn't called up and I think I've been doing okay, but such is life. I, I think there's probably a chance that that's an oversimplification of the conversation they had because we know that he sat down with Timothy Weah and they watched video and had conversations about areas of improvement for Weah. And now we see Weah being very much involved in this last uh, round of games. And we would assume we'll be heavily involved going forward. And I would like to see more of Luca De La Torre. I think what we've seen from him when we've watched him for Heracles has been good, but I still have areas of concern, both about his overall game, but also about the league he's playing in, the quality of the team, the quality of the opposition that's putting him under pressure or playing defense against him. So I want to see him in, in the national team. I want to see him get called into the camps. I think my larger concern is basically that sort of just talking publicly about Burhalter and what Burhalter said to him might end up getting him in trouble. So I think that's where I'm pushing back a little bit on the like, a professional response from him because I feel like a professional response would have been like, ah, you know, Greg's got to evaluate lots of stuff and I always am excited to be called in and I hope I will be in the future. Maybe that's him not being a straight shooter. Maybe I'm advocating for him uh, going to spin school or something like that. So maybe I'm in the wrong, (laughs) Joe. Who knows? Well, I don't know, Taylor. I think there's, there's truth in what you're saying. There could be repercussions. There could be challenges that come up from this quote from Luca Del Torre, from going on this podcast, I mean, we don't see a lot of players go and pull back the curtain like this. I think about John Brooks, who kind of just said, yep, wasn't good enough. I'm going to do better. And, and his response was like the consummate professional response. And Peralta referenced that in a press conference after the November roster dropped. I'm, I'm a little bit biased here because I do enjoy watching Luca De La Torre play. And so I hope we see him again with, with the national team before the World Cup. I think he's a better option than some of the other guys that have been involved with Baralter more in the past on the players he's known. I think there's an advantage that Leggett and Christian Waldon have over a guy like De La Torre because they've worked with Baralter more. So I do I do want to see more of De La Torre. I think he can help this team in certain ways. But it'll be interesting to see if these comments have any ramifications going forward. We might learn a little bit more about that towards the end of January. Yeah, I think, I think where I'm coming from as well is that I have... Uh, in the few times I've gotten to ask a question to Burhalter, sort of one-on-one, not in a press conference, he tends to be very alert to what you are saying and how you are saying it, <laughs> put it that way. That if you phrase a question in a certain way, if you say, like, hey, obviously it was a disappointing result, he is the type of coach that I think really doesn't enjoy editorializing when it comes to yeah. conversation. Yeah. And so I think that's what I'm sort of keeping in my mind as I hear that quote. And maybe if I'm, like, a fan who's just listening and thinking, like, yeah, he should be in there. I want to see this young kid get an opportunity. You're less concerned about that. But for me, I hear a- an older coach being like, oh, really, you're going to oversimplify what I said to you and you're going to frame it that way? Hmm, good to know. So uh, we will see if my concerns are valid. Chances are they're not, and we will end up seeing Luca De La Torre called back in. But if we don't, I think I'm also just aware of that if he doesn't get called in, it furthers that conversation, that discourse, if it's even discourse about Beralter's dumb, Luca De La Torre should be in the team every single time, and I think it doesn't help the U.S. kind of find... a a commonality to the way they want to play. I think it further divides the fan base a little bit. So I hope that's not the case, but I think that's where my concerns are resting at present. I think it's fair to be concerned and fair to be concerned about maybe Luca De La Torre oversimplifying that conversation. I just, 
We just don't know. Yeah. Like, we don't know what they talked about. And it could, it's entirely possible that he did oversimplify it. It's also entirely possible that all they talked about was transition and counterattacking and defensive transition. Yeah. Those could be the, the primary points of that discussion. And Luca De La Torre could have characterized it well in that, that podcast interview. So we just don't have enough information. I'm looking at this through the lens of this kind of feels like it won't end up being that big of a deal because they're both professionals, they're both adults, and they've, they've both been in situations like this in the past, Baralthra and Luca De La Torre. And so I, I'm hoping that this really won't be that big of a deal, but we'll find out. All right, so instead of a check, a check minus, or a check plus, I'm going to go with a question mark, question mark, question mark. We shall <laughs> see for Luca De La Torre. Uh, Joe, let's talk Weston McKinney for a moment. He gets the start uh, for Juve, then has to leave due to injury. Seemed like it might be pretty severe. He was down holding the knee. The reporting I've seen since then, uh, Max Allegri says it shouldn't be too much of an issue. Scans have ruled out what it seems to be a major issue. Uh, they were... The tweets I saw talking about this were either in Italian or using the complex like medical terminology that I don't understand. Which is just basically Italian. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you got it. Uh, but uh, the gist, as I understood it, is that he will miss the game today. I believe they're playing Salernitana. Uh, McKinney, prior to that, had started six straight games, but it seems like he will be back sooner rather than later. So uh, I'm g- just going to give a check plus for Weston McKinney being around and not being injured for the rest of the season. Yeah, that's huge, right? Avoiding a major knee injury is is important because McKenney, not only is he an important part of Juve, but he's a critical part of the national team. And when he's not on the field, we've seen the U.S. look worse straight up. So having him available as much as he can be is huge, I think. I feel like I keep sidetracking us, but I'm going to again. Hopefully we don't end up going for an hour and a half instead of the uh, previously stated hour. It's a strange season because like an injury right now, let's say McKenney did have... Not like a full tear of everything in his knee, but let's say he requires surgery that normally would keep a player out for four months, five months even. At this stage in the season, I feel like oftentimes that means they're going to be very, it's going to be very uncertain whether or not they will be back at full fitness in time for a summer World Cup. But because we are playing in November, the World Cup next year, there is a strange, like, there. if he's going to get hurt, like, maybe he gets hurt right now and he's back in time, it will be a huge bummer if it's, like, the final game of the season that somebody gets a, a season-ending injury, which means their season for next season is prematurely ended. So just a weird, another weird wrinkle to a, a cold-weather World Cup, Joe, that we're going to have to kind of keep our fingers crossed about as the season goes on. No ACL tears nah. in the month of May or the month of nah. June. I think we can just go ahead and say that right now. No ACL tears in May or June. All right, Joe. Since I have, first of all, agree. Second of all, since I have uh, derailed <laughs> us once again, why don't you take us through the rest of the uh, the quick hits as quick as you like. Okay. Yunus Musa made a short cameo for Valencia in their draw over the weekend. This just gets a check. It's the status quo. He hasn't started a game for Valencia since October 2nd. I want to see Yunus Musa play. I'm not surprised that we haven't seen him play. Uh, Bordelas has preferred to use him out wide, just like Javier Gracia did. So just not a lot's changed there. Maybe something will change, but it hasn't yet. Brendan Aronson started for Red Bull Salzburg, who lost Taylor on Saturday, their first loss of the season. Aronson is still a regular there and a key player for them in the league and in the Champions League. Tim Ream scored his fourth ever, fourth ever. He's old man, Taylor. His only, only his fourth ever goal. Uh, as a professional in his 13-year career, he scored in a 1-1 draw with Preston. Good left-footed finish off of a set piece. Christian Pulisic came off the bench in the 78th minute for Chelsea against Manchester United. He's working his way back to full fitness. It started for Chelsea against Juve in the Champions League and went 70 minutes midweek. So there's good signs there. Jesse Marsh and uh, Tyler Adams lost 3-1 to Bayer Leverkusen over the weekend. Adams came off the bench. 
Red Bull, Leipzig not doing especially well right now out of the Champions League. Not officially, but they, they literally cannot qualify for the next round. They're eighth in the Bundesliga as well. Only two points out of fifth, to be fair. But still, this team should be aiming higher. So that's a check minus from me on Leipzig. Pellegrino Matarazzo lost as well this weekend. Stuttgart are down in 15th in the league, just above the relegation zone on goal difference. Sam Vine started for Royal Antwerp in a 3-0 win on Sunday. He's been a regular starter for them since coming back from a collarbone injury. We've talked a bit about that in the past. And Taylor, the last player that I wanted to leave us on here is Serginho Dest, who did not play for FC Barcelona over the weekend. He's back from his injury. He's probably not at full fitness yet from that back injury, but he did get in against Benfica uh, last week, midweek on Tuesday, so a week ago as we're recording now. He got in against Benfica off the bench in the Champions League as a late sub. But there has been a report that yeah. Barca aren't all that convinced with Serginho Dest right now. The offensive part of his game, apparently, they don't have any problems with. Defensively, though, they have some questions, which feel fair to me based off of some things we've seen in the past. The quote from the report that I read, translated from Spanish to English so that we can all sort of understand it, is, quote, shortcomings are also evident when talking about Dest, especially when it comes to marking important rivals, which I appreciate just how fancy that sounds. But when when it comes to marking players in, in important situations, there have been situations in the past when Dest has turned off a little bit, and apparently there are some internal rumblings within FC Barcelona about Dest and maybe how those struggles aren't so sustainable. I don't know the the truth behind this report. I don't know a lot about what is really going on there, but I'm not all that surprised to see some questions and some critical evaluation of players, not just Sergio Dest, but players as FC Barcelona you know, changes a little bit from, from Ronald Koeman to Xavi here. So I will own that I do have more concern about this uh, because I tend to believe that when you start to see rumors about transfers they're coming from either the club that is trying to sell the player the club that wants to buy the player or the player themselves and in this case with the way Xavi has come in and some of the decisions he has already made I look at say the uh, signing of Danny Alves who will be eligible to play for Barcelona in January combining that with the fact that Jordi Alba gets injured in this game against Villarreal the week at the weekend and it's not Dest who comes in. I, I do start to wonder if maybe right now Dest isn't sort of in the the top top tier for Xavi. Maybe that means it's like, yeah, we got to wait and see. We got to see how he develops and how he responds. And I do think that is where I am on this. Is that this feels like the new manager? Maybe just let it be known that not everybody is is guaranteed to be in this squad. And this is a Barcelona team that are pretty cash strapped, but publicly are trying to sign uh, Ferran Torres from Manchester City, who it sounds like will let him go. But for the right fee, Barcelona need to raise money for that fee to be uh, hit, which means it sounds like they've also potentially been open to selling Sergi Roberto, Clement Longley, Oscar Mengeza, Felipe Coutinho, Neto or Samuel Umtiti, maybe a combination of those players. And so I don't have a like, okay, the manager doesn't want him. He's going to be sold or let go or just sit on the bench for forever level of concerns. But this does seem like a reminder, hey, just because you were brought into Barcelona under a manager just because you're here relatively recently does not mean that you are going to start every game or be in my plans if you don't sort of raise your game and do what I need you to do. And I think it sounds like maybe there is more of a defensive alertness that needs to happen for, from Serginho Dest and maybe just a bit more end product that is offered by, say, Jordi Alba or Danny Alves, at least in his prime. So I think it's maybe a wake-up call to Serginho Dest, and then we'll just have to see how things go over the next month before that January window opens.
So wake up call dash question mark yeah. for Sergio Dest in this one because it's still it's still too early to have a full idea of what's going on and what Dest's future will be. And I I'm not pushing the panic button yet. It feels like it's not time to do that. No. These concerns have been there and we've talked about this stuff in the past, Taylor. It's not like this is rocket science that Xavi's just sort of now uncovering this weakness in Dest's game. Yeah. But we're exactly. going to find out more about this going forward, and it, I'm curious to watch and see what happens. Yeah, because it doesn't it doesn't feel fully like they want to sell Dest because that would be the continued reporting of no, he's not for sale. We're never going to let him go. That feels like them posturing because somebody has come in with with a bid and they want that bid to be higher. When it's yeah, the player is available if the right price is hit. If he doesn't improve his game. If he's not doing enough on the areas we need him to, then maybe that to me feels like more of a an open, just like letting that rumor sort of simmer to see how the player responds. Uh, but he does have that release clause of, I believe, 340 million pounds. So anybody could beat that at any given moment. My assumption would be if he were to actually move, it's going to be for a slightly smaller amount. Taylor, do we have 340 million between the two of us? Because if we do, we could get Dest on the show with us every week, and we could have some weird discussions about the Chicago Bulls jersey he wears all the time. Joe, I think that could work. If you have like 99.9999% of that fee, then yeah, I think we do. Uh, I think we can make that happen. I'm not sure if my percentages were correct there. Uh, but yes, I, I don't have that one just to kind of like hanging out in my couch cushions, like say the new owners of Newcastle. Uh, We'll fundraise. We'll fundraise. We'll fundraise. So we've talked about a few Americans in some level of detail. Joe, let's talk about a few more in more detail in just a moment. The teaser. First, one more break to hear from today's sponsors. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think... 
I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Welcome back, Joe Lowry. We have already talked about Venezia, their 2-0 loss to Inter Milan. We talked a little bit about Gianluca Busio, what he did in that one. Let's talk a bit more, or specifically, Joe, why don't you talk some more about Tanner Tessman in that game? I would love to, Taylor, because Tessman was was good in this game, and good in a way that I haven't mm-hmm. seen him be in Italy. We've talked about Tessman before multiple times after he's moved uh, to Venezia from FC Dallas, and there have been good things. We've talked about some of the positives in the past. But he's also raw. He's 20. He's a big dude. He's trying to figure out how to move and, and grow into his frame. And those are still concerns. How those big is he, Joe? That... How big is he? 6'3", maybe? I actually, I don't know. Do you I, have a demo? Oh, we talked about this before. I think he's 6'4". And we were six, both, four. we were both, I, I think you dropped that gem on me. And my oh, mind was yeah. blown yeah. by how big he is. <laughs> That's It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. He's He's a skinny linebacker, basically, is what he is. <laughs> and if he had gone the way of his godfather, Davo Sweeney, he would be a linebacker. Yeah. I'm quite sure of it. He's a big dude. He's an athlete, but not in the Usain Bolt straight line speed kind of way. So there's still some physical things that he's he's working out and trying to to figure out as a player. But man, this was the best performance, the best set of minutes that I've seen from Tanner Testman since he moved to Venezia. Came off the bench in the 71st minute, just got over 20 minutes of, of play in this one. So not a ton here. But he has played in four consecutive games for Venezia, which I think is good. Not a regular starter, but but still making progress and becoming a, a regular fic, a regular feature er for Venezia. Venezia one nil down when he comes into this game, and they end up losing two nil, as you mentioned earlier. A uh, lot of good stuff in this one from him. First touch of the game that he has is pretty smooth. Turn and pass away from pressure. Then there's a sequence I sent you, Taylor. That's his next really meaningful touch. It's in the 75th minute. Gets the ball at the edge of the box. Quick feet to sidestep Marcelo Brozovic at the edge of that box and gets a shot off. The shot is is bad. It's really bad. But the action to set up the shot is way more encouraging for me and way more impactful than, than the mechanics of how he's shooting. It's it's a skill we've seen from him dating back to his time with Dallas. The, the quick feet, it feels like for his dude as big as he is, for being six foot four, he should not be able to have his feet move that fast. I talked about it earlier with Tim Weah. Tessman's a totally different build and a totally different player than Tim Weah, but they do share that rapid-fire foot speed. And I love watching Tessman pull out sequences like this. He's got another one later. Good feet, good good turn on the half turn to receive and then play a ball forward in behind. I sent you that clip, Taylor, in the yeah. 80th minute. He's got a bunch of other good moments, really only one turnover in this game. That comes in the 75th minute. There's a sequence where maybe he should be a bit quicker getting back on, on defense uh, as he's tracking Lautaro Martinez in midfield on an inter-counter, but I even think he does a good job of slowing Martinez down. And so initially I was critical of that, but then I watched it a few more times and changed my mind. I, I was really impressed by Testament in this game, Taylor, and I'm excited to watch him a bit more closely going forward. Uh, one comment, one question for you, Joe. Uh, yeah. the, the comment would be, yeah, Pretty excited about Tanner Sesson <laughs> from this game. Uh, yes, I watched the clips you sent me. I watched a few other little moments as well. But that one clip where he receives on the half turn under pressure and uh, is able to play forward from it, and this is with them playing out of the back, Venezia, that that 
was almost enough for me to be like, if he's not at the next camp, I'm going to be mad. <laughs> Just because you can have those moments, as you talked about, where like there's some quick footwork and then the shot goes wide, or there's a good take on here, there's a good 1v1 defensive play. And if you have the, enough of those over time, it feels like, okay, we know he can do this. We know what he's capable of here. This is good enough. This is an area where he needs to improve a little bit. But you start to build this idea of who this player is, and it allows you to know what they can do when they come into the national team or what we expect them to be able to do in the national team. That turn is so good under so much pressure against the caliber of opposition that it is that it makes me feel like if a player is able to do that, they are able to do a lot of other things and will be able to do a lot of other things when given more time on the ball, when given more backing by uh, the manager at club or international level. And I loved that moment from him. It's It really isn't even like that ridiculous of a turn. It's just something that I think we want to see our U.S. midfielders do more often and more yes. readily with more consistency and sort of belief behind it, more confidence behind it. Which then leads me to the question, if Luca De La Torre, Joe, is saying he feels like he has been better in transition, that that is a thing that he is sort of skilled at, and I asked you to rank them right now, who do you have more faith in to sort of more consistently make that turn under pressure and play forward? I've still got more faith in Luca De La Torre. There we go. He's... He's lower. This is almost for me. Part of this is his build. Luca De La Torre is lower to the ground. Like Messi's so low to the ground, and he can turn and pivot and, and just be on a swivel. Luca De La Torre can do that stuff. So it's it's simpler for him from a body mechanic standpoint to do that. And that is a part of his game. He's pretty clean on the ball, and he progresses the ball on the dribble after turning better than Tessman does, at least from what I've seen. So I would give the edge to Luca De La Torre. But to your point, Taylor, seeing something like this, seeing that half turn and pass over the top. It's not anything to blow your mind, but it's a clean, crisp sequence yep. that looks real nice. And, and having more of those as a baseline instead of a, oh, this happens once in a blue moon kind of situation. I think having more of those more often is, is a really good thing. Uh, the Johan Cruyff quote comes to mind. Playing football is very simple, but playing simple football is the hardest yeah. thing there is. And so to make that sequence look simple is a very skilled thing to do. But Joe, it then makes me happy that you feel like Luca De La Torre could do that. So I think I, I have been more like, yeah, he's not in there, but he's probably not in one of those starting uh, midfield roles for the U.S. men's national team. He might not even be a backup if our ideal talent is available. But you have me coming around to the idea that like, if we're talking about a game when McKinney is suspended and Musa is injured and we don't have some of the other options, Like then maybe it is Luca De La Torre who makes the most sense to be in there, Joe. So you're, you're swinging me. You're making a compelling argument in this show. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, buddy. I mean, I think, I think Luca De La Torre will be involved at some point down mm-hmm. the line, assuming that he hasn't completely severed relationships with Greg Barroso, yeah. which I don't think has been the case. And Testament as well. I, I hope he's involved at some point. I don't think there's a lot of convenient opportunities for him to get in before the World Cup, to be totally honest. Or maybe there's some friendlies before the World Cup that he can sneak into. I don't know. But it's a domestic heavy camp in a non-FIFA window in December. Same thing in January. And then you've got, you know, you need the full group and you need the best players you can for the January-February qualifiers and then the same for March. So I don't think there's a lot of good spots for him anytime soon. But like I said, towards the top of this show, that's fine. He doesn't have to be involved. I know it's tempting to look at these beautiful clips and say, okay, it's time. But it doesn't have to be time. That's the luxury that the U.S. has right now. And so I think sitting on Testament a little bit and continuing to let him grow and develop is is a great thing. And it's a luxury the U.S. has uh, that maybe they didn't have two, three years ago. Let me ask you this then, Joe. Do they have that same 
luxury when it comes to Josh Sargent. Hmm. Yeah, almost because Sargent's forced them to have the luxury by not doing the goal scoring thing. <laughs> yeah, that's that's my thought. All right, because uh, I don't want to hijack Tanner Tessman. Do you have anything else you wanted to add about him? No, that's great. Exciting right. performance, exciting young player. Let's talk about uh, Josh Sargent. We'll give him that check plus, but we want to see more minutes for sure. Uh, Josh Sargent, I, I have, I am concerned, Joseph Lowry, uh, and have been concerned. We've we've talked about him sort of off and on. We haven't watched a ton of him because it seems like we've sort of understood what he was doing. We've known what he was being asked to do. But Dean Smith now in charge of Norwich, and I was feeling optimistic. Uh, I played uh, pickup with some friends this weekend. Afterwards, uh, we had a drink, and they were talking about the Wolves game, which they had watched. Uh, Wolves drawing nil-nil with Norwich. Josh Sargent starting that game at right wing in a 4-3-3 for Norwich. And they were like, yeah, he started. It, it was exciting. Dean Smith was in there. And, and then it was like, well, how did he do? Yeah, yeah you know, he did Sargent things. And that was, <laughs> that was sort of what I, my expectations were going in. And that is pretty much exactly what I saw. And I come away from this being mostly just confused by Josh Sargent and what he will be for the U.S. men's national team. Because as I said, he's playing as a right winger and he is functioning as a right winger. He's tracking back a lot. He's doing a lot of defensive work. And I will add, I don't know if that is a thing that he always has to do or if that's because Wolves were in a back three. Nori, their left wing back, was very aggressive getting forward. And so Sargent oftentimes was the one who was tasked with tracking him or making sure he didn't get tons of space to do whatever he wanted and so it was basically track back defensively pay attention to your mark try to get in into the attack but even there Norwich not having a ton of possession so it's a lot of run forward and hope you get the pass run forward and hope that long ball comes off otherwise get back and do your defensive job and it's not even that Sargent played poorly or had a bad game it's just that a lot of that doesn't really fit with what they need that number nine spot to be certainly, which means if we're going to look at him based on what he's doing for Norwich, it means he's playing out on the wing. And I don't, I, I, I feel confident saying that he's not better than Christian Pulisic or Gio Reyna in that role. I'm not sure he's better than Brendan Aronson or Timothy Weah in that role. So it suddenly means he's further down the depth chart if he's playing in that position. If he's playing as a number nine, he's not playing as a number nine at club level. Timu Puki is. I don't expect him to supplant Puki anytime soon. So it basically means unless Sargent gets called into camp and is given an opportunity to show how he's improved, either as a winger or as a potential number nine, I don't know if we're going to see him anytime soon, Joe. It's it's kind of a bummer. I agree, yeah. Taylor. I agree with everything you just said. It's kind of a bummer to yeah. watch Josh Sargent right yes, now. Yes, it is. It's been such a sharp decline, or at least it is in my mind, from those really exciting Youth World Cups, the U-17 World Cup in particular. You know, I think, I think the U-20 World Cup was when he was better. It doesn't matter. That summer, right, in 2017 to now, where he's not even getting into the box at times. He's playing way wider than we ever thought he would. And in this game, Taylor, you're talking about him out on the wing. He had so much tracking back to do, and you highlighted that. He was playing as a right wing back at times just because of how the rotations fell into place for Norwich. That's not where you want Josh Sargent if you're a U.S. national team fan. It's not where you want Josh Sargent if you're Greg Berhalter, certainly. You want him in, in the box, getting a chance to refine his movement there, which is something that Greg Berhalter has talked about in the past that needs to be better. So I I guess I, I feel for yeah. Josh Sargent right now. I don't think he's a viable option for the national team because he's not getting in those spots to improve the, the main thing he needed to improve and frankly, I yep. don't really know when that's going to change. The, it's not done, right? The book is not closed. No. Of course it's not it's closed. 21. Yeah. 
But this chapter is not my favorite one to read. I'll put it that way. No, I I agree with you. And I look at then what he is being asked to do and how he's doing it. And there are areas of concern there as well. Uh, Going back to Wea for a moment, uh, this is a thing that he didn't talk about or I didn't see him talk about as much. But an issue I had with Timothy Wea in USMNT appearances before the Mexico game is that when he was that wide attacker on the right wing or the left wing, if he was subbing in, I don't feel like he was particularly good at knowing his angles in relation to an opponent on the ball. So if I'm going to try to do this as slowly as I can for listeners to kind of picture what I'm talking about. But let's say it's Wea on the right wing defending, and it's the left center back for whomever uh, is on the ball. Now, if the left back for that opponent, let's say it's Mexico. So left center back on the ball, left back has pushed up towards like midfield. Maybe the left center back has the ball 30 yards from midfield or 25 yards from midfield. If another midfielder comes over and Wea is asked to split the difference so that that pass into the central midfielder isn't as clear-cut as it might be, but also that pass out wide isn't as clear-cut as it might be, I don't feel like he was always particularly good at sort of splitting that difference. And oftentimes what I would see him do is try to apply pressure to the person on the ball, and that left either of those passes open. Against Mexico, his pursuit angle was so much better, and the way he took away passing options or even baited Mexico into certain passes, to me that was a thing that he had clearly worked on. And it made me really excited because it meant that the opposition had a much more challenging time building out so with that said I look at Josh Sargent on the weekend and he routinely is not quite sure where his positioning needs to be so that ball out wide to the left wing back is open the ball over the top at times is open the ball central tends to be open and it seems like he doesn't know enough about where he needs to be maybe it's a new position it's a new manager maybe this will come with time but even from the defensive side, it ended up being a lot of hard work, hard running, doing what he could. But oftentimes it ended with that sort of good enough defense where you let the wing back have the ball, you give them five yards of space, and if they cross, they cross. But at least you didn't get beat one-on-one. That tended to be what I saw from him defensively. And again, I don't think that that's going to be enough. I don't think it's giving Berhalter enough to kind of see and evaluate and decide like, yes, there's been enough growth. We can utilize that as a number nine or as a wide attacker if we need to. I think it basically means Josh Sargent is going to have to continue to get comfortable under Dean Smith and then improve those performances. And I think he's capable of that. Whether Norwich have the time and luxury to figure things out, I do not know. But I have more concerns than I expected about Josh Sargent at this point. He just doesn't look comfortable no. on the right side defensively, which I think is really understandable, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's not like he's been doing that forever. I, I'm kind of sort of, this is premature, but I'm kind of sort of here for Josh Sargent doing a Brian Reynolds or doing a temporary Jossie Zardes where those players were strikers and then, or at least they were forwards and transitioned over to right back Brian Reynolds more permanently and Jossie Zardes just for like one game or whatever it was. I... I'm interested in thinking about different ways that Josh Sargent could be used on the field in a position that's not the number nine role. And so I am curious to see how he functions a little bit wider and maybe even a little bit deeper. But right now, Taylor, from the clips that you sent me especially, he doesn't know how to do that yet. He's not comfortable in that space. And I do think that will come with time. But still, it it feels harsh because this guy was a goal-scoring nine, what feels like just yesterday, even though it was a lot longer ago than that. Yes. And then the other sort of like overall negative for Norwich would be that looking at their average number of passes per game, we'll see if this changes under Dean Smith. But right now, I believe on average, they're completing about 317 passes every 90 minutes. That puts them in the bottom five in the Premier League, more 
worrying than that is that their long passing numbers are near mid-table, which means they're prioritizing playing those sort of long passes into the channels or up top to Pookie and then hoping they have kind of the knockdown runs off of that. All that to say, there's not a ton of possession. There's not a, a ton of sustained buildup and moving the ball from left to right. So the times you do see Sargent on the ball, it's usually after Norwich have won it back and they're countering. Or it's a ball like dumped into the channel. He has to chase it down, and either he does so uh, or doesn't. But when he does, it's then cutting back and trying to find maybe an overlapping fullback or something like that. So it's not even he's getting time to build and be involved in an attack. It's all very kind of smash and grab. Which leads me to my final concern, which is just that prior to this game, Norwich had won their last two. Sargent had not started in either of those games. I think they scored two goals in each of those games. So four goals in the games where Sargent isn't involved. None against Wolves. Wolves, fairly strong opposition, but still just not the ideal scenario for Josh Sargent right now as we U.S. fans would love him to be that number nine that is leading the line, that is challenging Timu Puki and pushing him out and, and really showing that Sargent could be starting centrally for Norwich. I think that was the expectation when he moved there. Thus far, it has not come to pass. Sigh. Yep. Sigh, Taylor. Sigh. That's the rating I'm giving Josh Sargent right now. Just sigh. sigh. All right, Joe, maybe sigh. you can get us back on track with some happier <laughs> news. Who should we talk about next? Okay, so I've got John Brooks as my final guy to dive in deep on. Started and played the whole game for Wolfsburg in their 3-1 loss to Borussia Dortmund on Saturday. Wolfsburg are 7th in the league, last in their Champions League group. uh, Doing okay, I suppose, under Florian Kofeld. It's been a while since we've seen John Brooks with the U.S. He's playing a ton for Wolfsburg. He's a regular starter there. Um, Was a starter under Mark Van Brommel and still a starter under Kofeld. But it's been a while since we've seen him with the U.S. Barother did not call him up in November based on form, and Brooks was out in October with a back injury. So it's been two full windows since we've seen Brooks get involved, and we talked about the reasons for that and the response there and all of that good stuff. Uh, I hadn't watched a ton of John Brooks since he was left off of that roster in November. Taylor, maybe you had, but I hadn't. So I wanted to check in and see on how see see how he was doing over the weekend. So I watched this game, watched him play against Dortmund. A lot of good stuff. A lot of stuff that we expect to see. I was reminded of just how much I like watching John Brooks play soccer um, because he's so influential with the ball. He hit the ball and he has it on a rope almost all the time. 15th minute, chipped pass to a receiver between the lines. 17th minute, perfect chipped ball to Veghorst over the top that, that then led to a shot. 53rd minute, long diagonal. There's tons tons more that I didn't bother writing down because we know we know it's John Brooks at this point. We know what he does. Defensively, I thought he had a lot of good things going on, timed his, his pressures well in moments and, and was was a difference maker in the air and then clearing balls out of the box, with the exception, Taylor, of uh, a goal that Borussia Dortmund I scored. Like, I felt Holland's like there was goal. a Ned Stark butt coming this entire We're time, coming to it, and yes. I've just been waiting for it. The butt is there. The butt <laughs> is there. But the butt is always there. This, yeah. I, this took a weird turn. But the butt <laughs> is always there for John Brooks, right? And that's that's who he is as a player. And so this is... This is not a surprise. It's the goal that comes for Dortmund to really seal this game across from, I believe it's Julian Brandt, but Dortmund crossed the ball in from the left half space into the box in the air. John Brooks leaps up to try and head it away like he always does. Doesn't quite get there, and it comes to Erling Holland just behind him. Brooks isn't touched tight to Holland because he's banking on himself. He's banking on his own ability to rise up and head that ball away. But when he doesn't, Holland has a touch and, and touches it into the goal with his left foot, and it's three one at that point, and the game's pretty much over. It's, I, I almost have trouble faulting John Brooks too much because he is so good in the air. You look at his numbers, and even if you just watch him play, you can see how dominant he is. He's a big dude. I don't know if he's Tanner Tessman, six foot four, but he's a big guy. He can get up there, and he's good in the air. 
And so this is one of those situations that probably doesn't happen a whole lot if you do it a hundred times. Maybe he reads it a little bit better. But he has that little mistake and he has a step and a pursuit angle that he gets wrong to stop an Emre Chan counterattack and that leads to a foul and, and Wolfsburg have to sort of cover for him. There's one or two of those moments every single game for John Brooks and Baralter knows that, John Brooks knows that. But by and large, Taylor, I thought this looked like the John Brooks of old that we were banking on being a part of the U.S. men's national team. And I'm hoping that with some more consistent performances and maybe a few fewer errors over the next couple of months that we do see him back involved with the U.S. in January. I'm just choosing to believe that he wanted the Internet to get that memeable moment of uh, Holland scoring, (laughs) then running over to celebrate, pointing into the stands and the Wolfsburg fan not really enjoying it, the woman giving him the finger right back. so funny. It's great for people who haven't seen it. They should go watch that. So maybe that was John Brooks just wanting the Internet to have a nice moment. I'm also sort of heartened by the fact that it was not as though everybody on Wolfsburg had a great game and then Brooks had this one moment. For the most part, uh, a pretty poor performance from Wolfsburg, judging by their uh, their FOTMOB match ratings. Uh, but Brooks, as you said, Joe, I think okay in possession, not dispossessed, good in the air, uh, doesn't make that tackle. That is his, I think he's 0 for 1 in uh, tackles attempted and also concedes a foul there, which is part of the stats. So I think, like, overall, an okay performance against a Dortmund team that, that looked pretty good. But it does feel to me, Joe, like, like we have Zimmerman and, and Miles Robinson at this point who have, who have, done a very good job or at least a good enough job and we would assume we'll both be involved in maybe this December camp certainly in that January camp because they're going to be domestic heavy do you think that Brooks needs to have like like lights out performances do you think he needs to really prove that he is back at that a game or do you think if Brooks sort of continues this level of performance where it is yeah it was a good game he did this and this and this and this but there was that moment do you think that is still enough for him to be back in the good graces I think it's enough. I, I think having more consistent performances and getting a chance to show Baralter what he can do, I think that's going to be enough to get it. I'm also just not sure, Taylor, that that there is a higher level to John Brooks's game than what we saw over the weekend. Maybe, maybe there is. Maybe there's a situation where he gets everything right defensively. But from everything I've seen from John Brooks over the years, you have to... You have to support him. You have to expect that he's going to make some of those defensive errors. And so I, I'm not convinced that this isn't his A game. It might just be his level. And I think there's a huge room. I think there's a huge spot for him in the U.S. back line in games where you can support him and you can cover for him a bit defensively and you can get him the ball. Man, he's the best deep line playmaker that the U.S. has. And maybe there's a situation where a home game against El Salvador or a home game against Honduras will require that player. And I don't think the U.S. has any other center backs right now that are all that close to John Brooks with the ball at his feet. And I think for that reason alone, it makes him a worthy call-up for this next window because you have those home games where you're anticipating having the ball and John Brooks is the guy you want on the ball in those situations. So I don't, to be clear, I don't know that I'm advocating for him to start over Zimmerman or Robinson. I haven't fully thought it through yet. I don't think I would prefer that, at least in that game against El Salvador. If it ain't broke, you you don't really need to fix it. But having the option to bring John Brooks in and having him maybe to start that third game, the, the one against Honduras, that I'm, I'm kind of interested in. I think I know the answer to this, and I think you've kind of explained it out. But I wanted to get a, a specific idea for people. When we talk about John Brooks, Joe, what is a scenario when he's playing for the United States that you are most confident in when it's like, yeah, like they've – I'm assuming it's sort of a long ball driven in. You back him to win that. Or if it's him – uh, with a maybe like mid-block team and him on the ball, you sort of have that faith in him to play a ball through. Is it basically him in the air and him with the ball at his feet that you're most confident? 
Yeah, absolutely. Okay. He's he's the best. I, I said it. I mean, he's the best yeah. deep line playmaker the U.S. has, and in the air, he's really good. Even though we don't see that necessarily on the the Holland goal. And then on the flip side, is it safe to assume that you are the least comfortable when it's basically him having to make a play in open field? Let's say it's against uh, Daniel Malin, Malin uh, this past weekend. Malin, a player that I think of as being pretty clever and pretty quick. Is that the worst scenario for John Brooks to be in, basically? <laughs> because then you're asking him, a pretty tall guy with pretty long legs, to do that 1v1 defense in transition at speed. Anytime John Brooks is isolated 1v1, yeah. when someone's driving at him with the ball, I am nervous. I am scared, and that generally doesn't work out all that well for John Brooks. So it's it's the trade-off between the good stuff and the bad stuff. And that happens with every player. John Brooks's strengths and weaknesses, though, are pretty pronounced. And so then it's about... Berhalter figuring out how to balance those things. I'm, I'm thankful that I don't have to do that stuff. But it sounds like overall you are more confident in John Brooks than you were the last time we talked about him in, in one of these episodes. Yeah, confident cool. in John Brooks. And, and I think I, I, I definitely said back in November that I thought leaving him off that roster was a mistake. And I don't think that his form was poor enough to warrant being left off over someone like Mark McKenzie, who hasn't been all that impactful for club or country. So I, I wanted to see John Brooks back in November, and I, I, I do want to see him in January. All right. Final player to be discussed is one that I'm going to mention, but I will say a lot of similarity between Josh Sargent at Norwich and yep. at least on the weekend, Conrad <laughs> De La Fuente at Marseille. Marseille getting the one to win over Troye. I'm, I'm doing my best to do my French pronunciation, but man, was this an ugly game. Uh, and, I, and I think that is part of this conversation that should be had, is that it was not a Marseille te- team that were playing this free-flowing attacking soccer where everybody was tight on the ball and then Conrad De La Fuente was not. It was a lot of errant passes, a lot of sort of 1v1 take-ons that didn't come off, a lot of strange shots from tight angles or from distance. I don't think anybody for Marseille had a partic- particularly strong game but I want to set that stage to say that again with Conrad De La Fuente I'm not quite sure how he fits into the U.S. men's national team because he is starting as we've talked about previously as a left wing back for Marseille and he is playing as a left wing back a very attacking left wing back but still having to track back aggressively so to make sure he's in shape which means he's not functioning as that sort of very attacking wing back who also plays defense he's not doing the Atraf Hakimi version of it he is doing the defensive side too and so he's not doing in my mind enough of the kind of 1v1 defending in a system to make Berhalter think okay he could be a left back for the U.S. but simultaneously there's not enough end product and Joe this is sort of what I showed you in those clips or what I sent you in those clips is him taking people on and trying to make something happen but oftentimes losing the ball in those 1v1s having the ball poked away or just getting outright tackled or having passes not come off oftentimes he's cutting inside and trying to play them central and they are cut out or played behind a teammate who's making that run in and and it just didn't seem like there was enough end product there to justify him being brought into camp as an out and out winger but not enough defensive work or defensive sort of uh, evidence to show that he could do the left back job either. I kept waiting for him to get the ball after like the goalkeeper catches it, plays it out to De La Fuente, and he kind of carries that ball forward with pace 60 yards, which is something that I think we've come to expect when Anthony Robinson is playing left back for the U.S. I didn't see much of that. Instead, I saw him... Basically, the center back's on the ball, De La Fuente drifts forward, drifts forward, drifts forward, and then if there is a ball, it's over the top to him on that touch slide. He has to bring it down and then operate from there. 
you could have that with the U.S. national team, but I I go back to I just don't know if we are seeing enough of him to play an obvious role for the national team going forward, at least at present. Agreed. And that can change. Of course it can change. But right now, this was a rough one for Conrad De La Fuente. Maybe the worst performance I've seen from him at Marseille, and I haven't watched every single minute, but from what I have watched, which is a decent amount— I haven't seen him struggle this much on the ball and struggle this much with end product, which has been a concern in the past, sure. But this one was maybe the best example of some of the weak points in his game. I I do think Conrad has a bright future. I think he's got a lot of potential, and I, I think Taylor were both in the same boat on that. But I'm, I'm with you. I don't think January, February, or, or likely March will be the time for him in this program. What did you see, Joe, that made you like think it was such a, a poor game? Was it that that sort of lack of end product? Was it him not just having the overall uh, influence that we would like to see? Was it the defensive side? Anything in particular or just overall just sort of a like, meh, performance? I thought he was sloppy on the ball. I, I thought there, there's this one sequence that, Taylor, you didn't send it to me, but I watched it on Twitter. Um, there's this one sequence where he, he steps up to pressure and then he plays the ball to a teammate when the ball should have been on the ground to give his team yes, the best chance yes, to turn from, yeah. from pressure. But he, he puts it like shin height and, and he makes it really hard for his teammate to turn. And it doesn't work out for Marseille. And it's not a surprise because the ball should have been on the ground and it, it needed to be on the ground. There's that situation. There's him overhitting passes into the final third. There's him underhitting passes in a clip that you I mean, there's just lots of those moments and they started to add up in this game for me in a way that I haven't seen quite as much in the past for Conrad. And so that's why, Taylor, because of that general sloppiness and it happening so much. That's why I was a bit down on him in this game. No, man, that's that's a great point. I remember that moment and just it reminded me so much of Hot Potato of like, I don't want to yeah. be the one who loses the ball again. You I'm just going to ping this ball to you and then you figure it out. And in that way, it felt like in certain instances, like a very Conrad De La Fuente performance from U.S. youth national team levels, even from like the little footage I saw from him at Barcelona B, it's take-ons and trying to kind of beat people, go around them, uh, either with speed or with individual skill. And so he, with his duels, I think he is five for eight in his duels. But then his passing, I think 10 for 17, 59% passing, 0 for 3 on long balls. And there isn't that end product that justifies that sort of 1v1 emphasis. If you can get around somebody and then complete a pass or take somebody on, pull them in, and then you lay it off to a teammate who's overlapping, who then carries the ball forward, that all serves a purpose. When it's just taking somebody on to then have a pass go behind a teammate or go to an opponent or pinging it into their shins and then they have to try to control it, that doesn't then facilitate additional attacking play. And I think that was part and parcel of what was happening for Marseille across the board on the day. I saw Matteo Ganduzzi give the ball away five or six times without any pressure. So again, it's not as though De La Fuente had a, a poor game and stood out noticeably in that way. To me, it was most of Marseille having a poor game. And maybe that's a good thing because in the end, they still get the win, uh, courtesy of, I believe, Dimitri Payet. So a good result on paper, maybe less so in terms of what we actually watched, Joe. Yeah, and the only thing really that I, I am encouraged about Conrad in this game is just I like the image of him and Dimitri Payet trying to outskill yeah. each other in training. <laughs> that I think is fun and yeah. that brings me joy. Outside of that, this is not one to remember for Conrad. 
All right. Well, hopefully this was an episode to remember uh, for the listeners <laughs> who stuck with us. We did go long, but we talked about uh, USMNT camps, a lot of different players at a lot of different lengths. And hopefully we end up seeing John Brooks and Luca De La Torre and many other players called into those camps and getting some opportunities for the United States. Not sure what we'll see from Josh Sargent and Conrad De La Fuente going forward, but we will obviously keep an eye on them, many other players, and be back next week to do another Americans in Action wrap-up. Joe, you are not done with your TSS obligations this week uh if anything you've got much more still to come because we've got oh yeah mls playoff wrap up tomorrow we've got a soccer 101 we've got lister questions it's a busy week for you mr lowry Oh, it's it's the good stuff. It's the most wonderful time of the year, not just because of the holidays, but because we've got MLS playoffs. You, me, and Jordan, Angelie are going to do some analysis of the, the most recent MLS playoff games on Wednesday morning. That show will be out mid-morning or early afternoon on Wednesday. And then, yeah, as you mentioned, listener questions, 101, all that good stuff. And then Sam, I, I think, will be hosting Allocation Disorder on Friday, doing his job carrying and playing the piano while Paul's out on uh, paternity <laughs> leave. So. Joe, since listeners have stuck with us this long and we've already gone long anyway, <laughs> uh, let's make sure that this final two minutes is sort of completely dead within 24 hours by me asking right. you, we've got New England NYCFC this evening. That will be the final game that we're going to be talking about tomorrow. What are your expectations for that game? What do you think will be the keys or the critical matchups? What are the things you're most enjoying uh, or most excited to get to see tonight? I'm excited to see a matchup between two of the best teams in Major League Soccer. There have been a lot of wacky playoff matchups because mm-hmm. playoffs are, are weird and unpredictable. And so the West has been crazy. The East has been a little bit more chalky. It's been a little bit more predictable. And so I think these are two of the best teams in the league. NYCFC, in terms of their underlying numbers, have been elite this year. And, and the Revs have set a points record. And they have some of the biggest and best players in MLS. So I'm excited to see a battle of number 10s and Carles Hill and Maxi Morales and seeing who can have more influence on the game. I'm curious to see how Gustavo Bo and Adam Buxo work off of each other. They had a lot of success with that this season. How do they fare going up against NYCFC's back line? And then for New York City, I'm curious about their right side, which was poor in the first half against Atlanta and caused them some problems without Anton Tinnerholm at right back and Jesus Medina playing as the right-sided midfielder in that game. I'm curious to see what we get out of, what, what Ronnie Dyla gets out of that right side against uh, against the Revs because they don't often have... A, if you're playing the Revs, you've got to be you got to be good. You've got to be sharp. And the Revs are not a perfect team, but you don't want to be giving them opportunities down New York City's right, the Revs' left side. So lots of different individual and, and tactical matchups to look for. Tons of talent, too. It should be a fun game, Taylor. All right. Hopefully it will be a fun game. Hopefully it will be a fun game to recap tomorrow. But for now, Joe Lowry, thank you for taking all the time to talk about all the many things today. Right back at you, Taylor. Mm-hmm. Listeners, thanks so much for listening. I hope you stuck with us all the way through it. If not, shame on you, but you're not listening, so you won't <laughs> even hear me say that. Uh, and on that note, we'll talk to you very soon. Thanks again for listening.